Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we welcome BJ McAndrews. BJ is the founder of Flip. Um, Flip is a mobile banking app that he started in January of 2020, uh, brought a co-founder on board in March of 2020, and they're about to go live with their, realistically with their product here over the course of the next couple of weeks, um, most likely sometime in December of 2021, about the same time of this, as this podcast launches. BJ spent uh, 20 plus years in the bank in a couple of different roles um, with one of the banks here in town and took that experience, saw some of the things that were going on in society, um, upper mobility, lack of people having access to the banks and whatnot, and really used it to create Flip and, and the premise that sits underneath it. And just really solid podcast with him where we talk about how he approached the process of starting the company or getting the company off the ground from concept to idea to raising money to bringing on board you know, partners and vendors and, and, and then ultimately getting it ready for a launch and how they view their target market and everything. So very, um, very solid entrepreneur. I think you'll enjoy listening to his enthusiasm, first of all, and the, the approach that he took to, to get to this point. So anyway, certainly hope you enjoy another edition of the Charlotte Angel Connection. BJ, welcome to the show today, man. We're excited to spend the next 50 minutes with you talking about startups and, and we flip. Yeah, William, thanks for, thanks for having me. I'm pretty excited to be here. So um, if you can, if you can give us a kind of a brief introduction. So who are you? What's your background? Um, maybe a, a brief little clip on, on we flip. And then obviously we're going to spend the next 52 minutes, 53 minutes talking about it. So, um, but just tell us who you are, how you got started with the company. Absolutely. So my name is BJ McAndrews. I grew up in New York. I've been in banking my whole life for about 27 years. Uh, moved to, moved to Charlotte in 2002. Wells Fargo brought me down here to help build out and run a group called asset back finance sales and trading. And I was on the sales side and that's a group that dealt with, uh, with consumer and commercial receivables. Um, and we grew that to about a, about a $550 million business, but I've had, uh, I've watched the FinTech space for a real long time. And then a, a bunch of different events and ideas and light bulbs came together, uh, to start flip. So I, I resigned from Wells Fargo and it was the end of August, 2019. And they asked me to stay on until January, 2020, which I did to transition my business. And then, and then jumped full-time into, into Flip. And, and, and what Flip essentially is, is a social network for finance that, that all starts with an app that provides a modern social fun way to handle your finances and, and, our, our feeling is we haven't seen a tremendous amount of innovation in finance and we've seen, we have seen a lot of innovation in other, in other sectors. So we are, are super excited to jump into this pool and get going. I live out in Ballantyne area, have three kids, love skiing, mountain climbing, mountain biking, love the South. I almost consider myself a Southerner at this point, but that's a good, uh, that's a good start. 
sweet tea or unsweetened tea? I'm a mixed guy, and I I, I like to mix it up. The I still can't wrap my head around the full sweetness, um, but I'll also drift into the Arnold Palmer lane. So okay, that's kind of where I where I settle in. Fair enough. So, well, welcome to the South. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Eastern North Carolina, and I can't drink sweet tea anymore either. So, I certainly understand. Um, well, I and I have incorporated y'all into my my terminology and vernacular, so that's that's good as well. My dad's not happy about that. Hopefully, we'll hear that come out a few times. Yeah, today. exactly. So, um, so social network for finance. A gazillion things run through my head really quick, right? Um, so what's, how do you lead off in that space? Right. What's, um, uh, you obviously started the company in January, 2020 and it's, um, you know, it's November, 2021 today. So what's, what do you lead off with from, um, from a product perspective to get the business up and running? Um, and then we'll get into how you grow it and everything else in a second. Yeah, that's a great question. So when you, when you, and when I, when I've looked at the space for a long time, I saw, obviously we see, we see, we see technology and technology has intersected with name the industry. And we've seen tremendous innovation in, in, in gaming, um, in music, in audio, we've seen media, so, so many different industries that have really um, embraced the technological collision and have, have innovated so nicely. Finance, finance hasn't done that as much. And I think where the, where the, the industries that have done the most interesting things are the ones that have moved from non-digital, non-social into social. And what I mean by that is they, they continue to iterate and they continue to innovate taking a product and service and wrapping it in, in a social experience. I mean, look at what we've seen in fitness and how things have graduated from going to the YMCA to maybe going to a CrossFit to now going to Peloton, or there's a cycling app called Strava that connects you with cyclists all over the world and has taken that fitness experience and moved it into a very, very global social experience. Um, but back to your question about how do you how do you do this day one? How do you stand up a company? You can you can have the greatest roadmap in the world, but if you can't stand up a company and you can't differentiate right out of the gate, you're kind of dead in the water. Um, so when we when we thought about that, the table stakes in neo banking or digital banking are that people partner with a bank, they leverage that bank and that infrastructure to offer financial services, so that they harness all that infrastructure, all the regulatory framework and skeleton that comes along with that as well as their, their FDIC insurance. And the table stakes are basically that people offer a debit card with either Visa or MasterCard. They offer some sort of overdraft protection. They have a very reduced fee structure. Some do a subscription structure and they offer two day early access to wages. And that's exactly where the innovation stops. You do have people that are breaking themselves into micro lanes that are calling themselves the black bank or the Latino bank or the gig worker bank or the worker for actors and actresses. Um, but I think they're really hurting their, their unit economics by going so narrow. So when we sat there, we said, we wanna be modern, we wanna be social, we wanna be fun. 
how can we really harness that? And where we arrived was a gamified rewards program. So we looked at what people were doing and we talked to so many young people that were, you know, on how they spend and where they choose to spend their dollars. And so many people, the answer was wherever I get the greatest reward, that's how I'm going to figure out what card I take out of my wallet. So every time you swipe our card, you get a wheel spin, you spin the wheel, you find out what you win, you either win flip coins or you win cash. The flip coins will be used to buy swag in our flip store. And eventually as we build out the company, will be used to put into your digital wallet and to buy and sell and trade crypto. Or you will get up to 110% cash back. And obviously that spin will give you a different reward every time. But it's pretty cool to think that you could be at Best Buy and you could be buying a TV and you swipe your card. And at point of sale, you're getting a wheel spin and you spin that wheel and all of a sudden it's, hey, Flip just bought the TV. And it's kind of like that cap one moment, like, you know, what's in your wallet? It's like, Hey, what's what banks, what 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 companies buying a TV for you? Yeah. And and we we took it one step further. We we didn't want to stop there. We started to go to the whiteboard and just kept writing stuff down. If you post it on social media and you tag us in that moment of delight, you get an extra 10%. So very long answer to your question, but that's how we are differentiating out of the gate. We're really gonna be modern, really be fun, really be social very social mission driven company, um, but really drive everything home with that gamified rewards program, which we think is pretty cool. So you're taking a traditional bank, you're using it kind of as a white label structure, you're putting flip on top of it, and issuing a debit card to go out as well, right? Is that, am I thinking of it the right way, BJ? Yeah, you are. So if you go back and look, just think about the lanes, right? There's, you could start a bank, and have your own bank and build that bank up and have FDIC insurance and all the infrastructure that goes along with that. You could buy a bank and um, you could go that route. Um, or you could do what, what has become known as banking as a service, where you partner with the bank. We are a consumer technology company that lays on top of a bank to offer finance services. So it's a very modern way to, to offer finances to people in a, in, you know, in, in a great, great user experience. Yes. Yeah, a um, much more cost efficient way of essentially spinning one up. Right. Um, and at the end of the day, you're providing a bunch of overlay on top of it to make it, you know, that much more beneficial for people to use it. Exactly. Um, when we, when we within flip talk about products and services, everything starts with how do we not charge the consumer? Or how do we charge them very little? How do we make it modern? How do we make it social? How do we even, even share revenue with our customers? If you think about the way we built the, the rewards program, we are essentially funding that with our revenue. So how, you know, right away, people are going to say, if you're offering no fees and you got this rewards program and you got free overdraft, you guys, based on just simple mathematics and economics, you should be out of business in about seven hours, right? But... <laughs> But it, it, it's actually very, you mentioned cost efficient and how we make our money in our version one revenue revenue is by interchange. And anyone who's not familiar with interchange, every time you swipe your debit card or a credit card, there's a fee paid by the merchant that goes to the bank and it goes to whoever is on your front of card. So whether it be MasterCard, Discover, Amex, and there's there's a fee associated with that. Um, but what we have done, which is really cool, we we welcome taking that fee. That's what is going to help us stand flip up from a revenue standpoint. But we are taking a portion of that revenue 
and giving it back to our customers. Okay. Makes sense. And you're partnering with? Our partner bank is Sutton Bank. They're, um, they're out of Atticus, Ohio. Um, they partner some of the biggest fintechs in the space, Cash App, Robinhood, Albert, um, a, lot of, a lot of the big names. They've been a, been a, a great partner and have a wealth of, uh, of fintech knowledge. And then who's your, who's your card with? Our cards with Visa, which we're super excited about. I mean, MasterCard was great to great to talk to. They put a nice offer on the table. Visa seemed to really get where we were going and what lane we were in. Loved moving in that social plus direction, and they put a great offer on the table. And again, they've been they've been an amazing partner. All right, so let's go let's go on the in the way back machine for a second. Um, okay. You ready? Mm-hmm. Um, it's January of 2020. You've got the flip concept. You've left, you've walked out the, the Ivory Wells Fargo tower for the last time. Um, and you mentioned a few minutes ago that you, uh, you know, obviously you had to, you had to negotiate with, you know, visa, you had to you know, talk with, you know, MasterCard. Um, you had to figure out the relationship with Sutton bank. And I don't know if you talked to others um, you had to, you had to do consumer research. You probably already started doing consumer research before you walked out the door. Um, how, what was your, what's your process, right? So how did you just walk us through your, before you walked out the door for the last time? And then once you walked out the door, what did you start to do, right? What were the, what were the foundational blocks that y'all had to build in order to get moving in the right direction? Yeah, that's such a big question. Um, so, when, when I knew that I was heading in this direction, just like anything, you know, the theoretical whiteboard comes into play and you have to think about is, is the opportunity there or is it a mirage? And you dig into as much as you can. And, you know, me being a data guy and a numbers guy, I, I hate that that number never gets to 100%. You're, you're somewhere between... 60 and whatever, 95, but it's never a hundred. You're never, you know, people always talk about that old adage, you know, jump and the net will appear. Well, I don't like that. I don't like that idea. If I jump off a cliff, I want to know how deep the water is. I want, I want to know if there's any sharks down there. Um, I always think of the Indiana Jones movie, Indiana Jones and the last crusade, you know, where he throws the oh, rocks I across. So yeah, I <laughs> give I me the rocks, that. man. <laughs> I've watched it so many times and I, and I always arrive at, I would have never gotten across. I would have turned around. I probably would have thrown myself in front of that ball coming down, but I wouldn't have gotten there. No way. Um, so, you know, you look at the whiteboard and you start to think, is it a mirage or is the opportunity really there? And then I saw the opportunity and then it starts to, you know, almost, you know, using a football analogy, looking for the hole. Where's, where are you going to differentiate? How are you going to differentiate? And what do you need to do? Way aside, way before hiring, way before capital and what pieces need to be put into place. And I came to the realization there was about, there was about, 11 pieces roughly that I needed to put into place. And that was everything from a processor, a bank, um, a front of card network, a back of card network, um, different types of card embossers. There was a chip shortage. I needed to think about the chip shortage and how to, how to remove that risk from, from the equation. I needed to come up with an ATM network. I needed to come up with how to get cash into the system. I needed security. I needed KYC. I needed AML. I needed direct deposit solutions. So 
I, I just, it was all on the whiteboard. I started to call the smartest people I know. Um, top of that list was Gary Zukowski, who's my co-founder. And he's a career technologist, career entrepreneur, has started businesses and sold businesses. He's been all over CNBC and he's just such a smart guy. I've known him for 15 years. And I called him with every technology question you can imagine. What's an API? What's a J hook? What's an orchestration layer? How do websites work? Who has the best user experience? What about this? How, do, how does this, what if there's an outage here? What do we do? And uh, I wore him down to a nub and I think he also saw the opportunity and he jumped on board. So then we just put our heads together and I basically asked him to validate everything. I said, here is where, here's my, here's my thesis and here's how I want to execute. And I think he agreed with about 90% of it and crossed off 10 and, and then we both headed down the path. So again, a long answer, but that's what went into that initial, you know, and that, that doesn't even take into account that, oh my God, there's a pandemic. How are we going to raise money? How are we going to start a company? How are we going to hire people in the middle of a pandemic? Um, but those were, those were all the, the wins that were coming through the, the sailboat. So you're in a cush job at the bank. I'm assuming a cush job at the bank. Um, I'm not, not in a negative way calling your previous role a cush job, but you know what I'm saying? Um, and you've got this whiteboard of essentially hurdles right? That you have to overcome, um, in order to start the business. And you just listed it off 11 and I can only imagine there was more in your head that you just didn't put on the board. Right. I know there's more in your head. Um, so the first time you looked at it, was it, was it kind of the, Oh no moment? I can't do this. Um, or, um, did you literally just process it and say, okay, one at a time, I'm going to figure out whether or not I can do this. Right. How did you, it's a big mental hurdle when you look at, um, cause one, you wrote down a bunch of knowns, known risk, right. Um, what you didn't know was all the unknown risks that were going to appear at, as, as the process goes. And I think so many people get stuck in that, right. They look at that whiteboard and they say, ah, oh, man, that's, I can't do it. That's too much. Um, so is it just innate in, in you BJ that you just kind of took them down one by one, or is there a process to, to follow or how did you get through that, that big mental block of 11 plus items that you had to clear? I think that, I think when it comes down and I'd be curious to even hear what you think on this, but because you talk to so many entrepreneurs, but I think most entrepreneurs are somewhat disconnected from reality right? They have some sort of disconnect where many people would say, yeah, that's a great idea, but there's a lot of people doing that. Or yeah, that will never work. Or I can't imagine what Bezos was told at Amazon through all the different iterations of his business, starting with, I'm starting a bookstore to, I'm going to go head to head with Netflix or Blockbuster, or or it just, I can't imagine all that, that goes into that. For me, it was, it was a hard but not super hard decision leaving. I kind of felt this, you know, this pulling, if you will. I mean, I had a, a job that there was probably only 12 head of sales seats on Wall Street for my type of, you know, structured product, structured credit. And when I told people I was giving it up and walking away, I, I mean, 
it, I got the most amazing, you know, from the best, from friends that I've had for 30 years that were, you know, it would be the, the um, it, it would be as if I was saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to try to smoke crack and just see what it's like. And, and it, you just get this side glances of people that think you're really, you know, you're, you're, you're walking out into the jungle by yourself. Um, but as you start, as you start to piece things together and you start to see, I mean, this is a space that hasn't even seen an IPO yet. And there's so much innovation. And I love when people say, well, the space is crowded. I mean, it is, it is nowhere near crowded. And there's going to be so many. Everyone just equates it to there's going to be one or two winners. There's going to be so many winners in this space. So it, it, does, it does take that, really, you have to jump. And um, I think when you talk to entrepreneurs, you find that commonality that everyone just kind of acknowledges that weird little crazy look in your eye when you talk to them, like, wow, you walked away from it. It's like, you know, walking outside the gates of a society where there's dinosaurs and you're just completely out in the unknown. But I mean, I, I, you know, the flip side of that to work flip into the conversation wherever I can um, is that it's worth it. And I think that when you work in those big ivory towers that are great, big banks, big companies were great to me, but it is worth leaving. You can really get desensitized staying in those towers. Yeah. No, I mean, you're right. I mean, you know, read an article this week that just talked about the the satisfaction index of entrepreneurs versus employees, um, despite the higher stress levels that they go through, all of the other things of being an entrepreneur, business owner, whatever, um, far outweigh the stress that they have to go through. Um, and I thought it was pretty interesting. And then they highlighted too, just the, um, the optimism um, that entrepreneurs usually come to the table with, right? Which is, you have to be optimistic. It's, it doesn't mean that you don't see pessimism from time to time. Right. But generally speaking, you have to be an optimist to be able to step out there and do it. I think so. Um, maybe the optimism is the, um, the crazy part of our brains, right? I think so. I think you're right. So, um, so anyway, so, so you've stepped out, you've started to go through the list. You found your found your, your co-founder, right. Which is such an important component for folks. Um, um, having a co-founder and especially in your case, somebody that's been through it before, somebody that understood the technology, right? You brought a, or you bring a great sense of banking knowledge to the relationship, but to have somebody that can understand the technology of it. You talk about marrying a, a nice co-founding team together is what you've got. Um, so you've got that. When does Gary come on board, by the way? He came on. So I started, I jumped in full-time January, 2020. Yeah. And he joined, I think it was uh middle of March, 2020. Okay. When the whole world was melting down. Why not? Well, he was, he was, um, he had started a company that was one of the first um, SaaS platforms, social recruiting platforms using Twitter and using your mobile device. Um, and he ended up selling that company in 2011 to a California based company, but I could totally tell that he was looking for, um, he was looking for another adventure. I mean, he had that look, the way he was so engaged on flip, the way he was listening to my ideas and the way he was iterating and, and, and eating and breathing it. I just had to wait him out a little. And uh, I just had to wait him out. It was like trying to get that real pretty girl to dance with you. I, I knew she wanted to dance. Yeah. And, uh, he came on, he's been great. And yeah, he's been fantastic. That's awesome. 
So, and you go live next month, right? You go live in December of 2021. Yeah, we're marching towards our, our launch. In fact, I, I, I will start swiping my digital wallet soon and we'll start um, testing probably in the next week to make sure the pipes work for me and make sure that everything's working through processing and, and money's moving where it should be. And then we'll, we'll kind of open to the general public um, in probably, probably middle, first, second week of, of December. Okay. When the average person hears that BJ, it's got to blow their mind, right? So you walked out the door in January, 2020 and essentially 23 and a half months later, you've got a product launch. Um, talk about what you've been up to, obviously checking off that checklist of 11 things, but um, what's, you know, um, what's the process been to get you there? Yeah. The, I mean, there's, there's so many project plans that we're managing and need to be managed. You need to nail down all the agreements. So the, um, you know, the 11 agreements that we needed to get in place you know, that's not just, that's not just getting those agreements in place. I mean, if you look at the banks, if, if you look at the issuing banks or the partner banks, there's about 32, 33 in this space that you could potentially partner with. We, we interviewed about 16. So just that alone um, took a lot of time going through KYC, AML. So checking all that off the list, then there's the, then there's the, the capital raising and putting putting you're you're essentially walking into a room with a napkin and your resume saying here's my resume here's a napkin here's what i'm going to do you know just give me your capital and trust me everything's going to be fine and um that's and then it's the middle of a pandemic and the world is completely melting down and you haven't met many of these people other than on zoom and they can hear my dog barking in the back and it's surreal but then we needed to, you know, raise the money. Then we needed to, we, we told our investors and I have compliance beat into my head because I've been in banking for so long. I, I, I know policies and procedures need to be there. I know the controls need to be there. Testing needs to be there. So everyone I came in contact with, I said, my first hire will be a compliance person. It will be a rock star. And I hired a woman named Corey Coggins, who was my compliance officer for, I don't know, probably 15 years at Wells Fargo. And um, she's the best policy procedure person I know. And what I love about her is that she's even drifted out of that lane and she has gotten, she's added to creative, she's added to marketing, she's added to fundraising pitch decks. So she was, she was amazing. And then the other thing we said we needed to do is we needed a rock solid business development and marketing person because I'm a banker and Gary's a technologist and I'm not creative. I mean, it, you know, when I look back at some of the initial names I came up with, some of the initial branding, I mean, I am embarrassed um, by what I was thinking about naming this company and what taglines I was using and calling big companies out onto the mat for what they do. And it was horrible. So we needed a business development and marketing person. And we went through 300 resumes. And then finally, the woman by the name of Josie McArdle fell in our lap. She was, she was leaving a VC funded robotics company in Silicon Valley and wanted to move to Charlotte to be closer to family. And she asked some of her investors in California, who's in the Southeast, who's doing something cutting edge, who has a really good team. And they recommended flip. 
and we got connected to her and she joined and has been great. So we checked that off the list is that we, you know, we got more people on the rocket ship that were willing to fly with no helmet. And, um, and then the technology dual boot. Um, we, we really wanted to keep it in the family, meaning that keep as many dollars flowing in the Southeast as we could. And if we, if we have to go outside that, we'll go outside that. But we really wanted to build best of breed and if we could keep it in the Southeast. So our developer is a company called Dooboot, which I don't know how, how well you know Dooboot, but um, they've, been, they've been amazing. They got introduced to us by our law firm. Our law firm is MMM out of Atlanta, which is one of the top FinTech legal firms. And they've been amazing. They introduced us to Dooboot and amazingly, Dooboot had worked with Gary and come up with an augmented reality recruiting tool for him and done a really good, you know, bang up job on that. So we just kind of felt like that was the, the, the right team to go with. And they've been, they've been a great partner. So all those things had to, had to come together. And as you touched on earlier in the conversation, those were just the knowns, the unknowns that came up were just amazing. How many different things. I mean, this is a, a wild west industry so there were so many things that popped up yeah so let's let's touch touch base on a couple of things that you mentioned there um the ever important fundraising conversation right yeah so um how did you go about that so how early on obviously probably before you walked out the door you knew you're gonna have to raise money how did you tackle that problem um, how early in the process did you tackle it from a self-funding versus eventually raising outside capital? Um, how did you, how did you manage that process of, of, of being a you know, a capital raiser? Yeah. I mean, it kind of, um, <laughs> it kind of all starts with your spouse, right? And it kind of all starts with, Hey, I'm leaving Wells Fargo. Um, I'm leaving a big bank. I have a big job. Uh, um, you know, I'm leaving that all behind. Oh, and I'm going to have a, we're going to start a company that's in a lane that's just growing and I'm going to bootstrap everything for a little while. And it, it's, you know, bizarro world. I would um, say that's your, um, that's your toughest investor right out of the yeah, gate, oh right? Is the, yeah, is the spouse. By far my toughest critic. And uh, once I got Catherine on board and got her, her ready to go, I, I, I bootstrapped everything for the first year and knew that I had to get legal, I had to get trademarking, I had to get tremendous amount of accounting work done, I had to, um, you know, I had to reach out to investors. That was a little bit where the virus worked in my favor because travel wasn't, travel really didn't come into play and office space didn't come into play. People were very open to others working from home and it became a norm. So that actually saved me some, some money, but, but, you know, fundraising out of the gate, pre-revenue, pre-product. I, I, I got a lot of good advice out of the gate that I wasn't willing to accept. Um, like most venture capital institutional are going to take your call because they want to have the information and they want to say that they spoke with you and they need, need calls logged and things like that. But there is no way they're going to invest in pre-product, pre-revenue company. And I was adamant that they were lost in space and I was right. And VC money would be, they'd be throwing it at me, but you quickly get into that. You, you know, you get into that world of, you know, when the 89th door is slammed in your face, um, horrible, you know, there's only so much you can hear your baby's ugly, but you have to get very 
very used to it. So the capital raising was, was a big part, but eventually you find your people and you find people that love the team, love the idea and, and want to, want to invest. So we got that first round done and now that will get us all the way through, through launch. We're real lean on, on, you know, what we're spending. Um, but we are spending money on marketing and we're spending money on technology and legal. And, and now we're back out fundraising again. Um, doing another round that will get us through next year. What's the, what's it like on this? So for you, I mean, it's crazy, right? I mean, you raised first round pre-revenue, um, pre-product almost, right? Definitely, um, yeah. Yeah. And so no, now you're, you're raising second round and you, you technically speaking at this stage, you still don't have a penny to show for it. Um, right. You, uh, yeah. So what's it like raising money the second time around, from from that perspective right is it is it still just as hard is it a little bit easier because you've got the relationships built um what is it it's 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 easier and there's definitely more swagger and there and and you're right we are still pre-revenue but where you where the where people assign value and people really can see the hard work i mean the the agreements that we have in place with the people that I mentioned are best in breed and the economics and the terms around those agreements are very good for flip and for my investors. Um, so I think people really see that they see the hires that we've made and the quality of the hires. They see the marketing footprint we have. And, um, you know, I always think it's a nice compliment when people think we're bigger than we are. Cause that's what you want as a startup. You want to have a bigger, you know, a bigger presence than you, than you really are. Um, people can look at our tech stack and they can look through the technology and they can see the flow. They can see the UI, they can see the UX. Uh, they know we're launching in December. They can see that we hired a full-time marketing company. And I think all those things, you know, lead many investors and, and many have told us, you know, I can't believe how much you've gotten done in such a short period of time, virtually in a pandemic. It's amazing. So, We've gotten a lot of street cred, if you will, with investors that we go, maybe we spoke to in January or February or March, and we come back to the table and show them what we built and the agreements we have in place and the economics and the gamification and the roadmap. And when they want to go deep in the weeds on finances and our, our, our model and, and unit economics, I think we get a lot of credibility on that. But no doubt, we are still, we are still pre-revenue. And there's a lot of people that just they don't even want you to have a lot of customers, even if you have a hundred customers, they just want to see that the pipes work and they want to see that, that people will convert and they'll, and they'll sign up. So it's definitely easier this time around. I feel like we're, we're, we're a lot more confident, but as you know, fundraising is never, is never easy. It's never, you, you get a lot of scrapes and bruises and bumps. Yeah. No, your ego gets, um, your ego gets beaten and kicked and stomped on and set on fire and, hosed out and everything else right every day yeah. yeah every day um but i mean you know you talk about that right i mean i think of i think of the new york mess I mean, you talk about you know hiring best of breed and um and all the good things that you've done in place or you've you've gotten in place and the progress that you've made over the course of the last 18 months but I mean, the new york mets spend gobs more than almost every other team in baseball every year they've got nothing to show for it right so 
how do you, you know, how do you convince investors, you know, that it's, it's all coming together? Is it, is it literally, you're just showing them the fact that the team's working and you're doing this and you're doing that. Um, Cause I mean, it's the same thing. A lot of startups will spend a boatload of money on different things and it never works. So how have y'all been able to communicate that with investors that it's, you know, the team that we have not only is great, but it's actually a team that works well together and is moving towards, um, collectively towards that vision, right? How do you, how do you sell that? Yeah, it's such a good question. And there's so many things kind of embedded in that question. I mean, one on the baseball side, I I mean, $1 is very different for, for how people spend it. And I'm a, I grew up in New York and my mom was a Mets fan. I was always a Yankees fan, but you know, $178 million payroll, you don't make the playoffs. I mean, don't get me started. Tampa Bay, 48 million. I mean, Jerry Cole is going to make more than the entire Pittsburgh Pirates this year. I mean, he should, that guy's got to feel guilty. I mean, he's got to, he, he can't sleep well at night. Um, but that dollar is, is I like that we're lean right now. I like that we're being really smart about our money. Um, when we, when we thought about this funding round and we started to let people know the, the, the fintech market is really hot, as you know, and there's a lot of tailwinds and there's a lot of innovation. So we, we fielded several calls from large investors, large venture capital firms that said, would you consider jumping to an A? So we, instead of raising another two, three million bucks and staying lean, getting through launch, showing growth, showing your KPIs, would you consider jumping to an A and raising 15 or 20? And we did maybe half a dozen, a dozen of those calls and really arrived at, no, I don't think we want to, I don't think we want to jump ahead because if you take that money in, you have to spend that money and you have to show people where you're spending that money and you have to rush. And, and believe me, startups are all about rushing. They're all about getting to market. They're all about getting customers and proof of concept. But until you get to market, you don't really, really know what your customer wants. And we want to get to market and stay lean and take more of that Tampa Bay um, approach to, to, to getting customers in. But to your question too, how do, you, how do you convince investors? I think a lot of it is, is, is the team. And so many investors will tell you, and you can read it in so many different you know, startup books, that they invest in teams, not ideas. They have to think that the idea is, is okay, but they have to believe that that team has a resume, has contacts, has Rolodex, has know-how um, in doing a host of different things. So I think the initial team we've put together has really convinced people that, wow, they, they're, they're bringing in really good people. They're very committed to this process. I think even me walking away from the job I had and jumping in and bootstrapping everything for a year shows, wow, this guy's, he's got a lot of skin in the game. He's all in on this. And um, I think that gives people more, more comfort, but it's, 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 it's not easy. It's not even, even from the investor's seat. When they look at someone like me, they, you know, again, they, they, they know it's a, it's a napkin. They know that it's a, wow, we're taking a, taking a flyer, but that's what that world is, right? The, the, the startup world, whether, depending on which side of the fence you're on, it's full of big swing, swingers. It's it's people that are 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 comfortable being uncomfortable, and um, I don't know. I, I'm I'm hugely bullish and can't wait to get to market because I you know I know we have a good idea. Yeah, well, the, the um the mindset and optimism of, of, of an entrepreneur as we mentioned earlier, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So 
you bring, you know, your banking experience, right? Is is a huge benefit to the company. Um, you've got your co-founder Gary that's been, you know, was able to answer all of your tech questions. But you mentioned earlier that you went and hired Dual Boot to do the, you know, to to be your technology partner, right? So what's um what's that experience like, right? I mean, you've got your co-founder that that knows the tech. You you partner somebody with dual dual boot. How does that relationship um, start? How does it how does it grow? And at some at a certain point in time, you know, do you start to think, you know, as a as a bank, we need to bring that in house, or how do you view that? technology relationship because it's so important right i mean and so many people struggle with that in-house at a house how's it going to happen um so how did y'all walk or how have y'all walked through it to date yeah that is such a good question and is one that i have thought about endlessly and the reason (laughs) the reason being i mean you know as you touch on i'm a banker and I know how to underwrite, underwrite risk and hedge risk. And I know what consumers like and what they don't like. And I know how to read data, but I'm not a technologist. So now I'm building a tech company um, that's in the finance lane. And there's a host of things I don't know. And I, you know, going back, I hate when the number is not 100. When you don't know everything, it's very uncomfortable. And when I drifted into technology, there's a lot I don't know. So we had always had the thesis that we were going to build the dream team and we were not going to compromise on talent, which was one of the reasons or another thing that the virus kind of worked in our, our favor, because right now we're, we're remote only. So when we're looking or hiring, um, people can be anywhere. And that's playing in our favor a lot with how, how employees want flexibility in the, in the workplace. But that's a whole nother, a whole nother topic. Um, so we, we obviously whiteboarded both, both parts of the equation, build it in-house, find the right people, find the developers and do it in-house or um, find a dev shop, get to market quickly, um, control the costs, reduce the project risk um, and partner with, with best of breed vendors that are going to help us, help us round this out. And Again, we didn't want to get into a lane of analysis paralysis. We were thinking about this for weeks and weeks. We needed to quickly digest the problem and quickly come up with a plan and start to execute it. And after looking at the market and looking at what it would take to hire people and what it would take to get you know, from zero to one, outsourcing it was, was the best option for us. And But we didn't want to give on talent. We certainly didn't want to give on security. We wanted to scale quickly. We wanted to get to market market quickly. Um, and then we just got, we got really comfortable with, with dual boot. And then we got really comfortable with the best of breed vendors that we layered in. So two, for example, would be SoCure and Galileo. SoCure is our AML and KYC know your customer vendor. And we, we must have had 40 phone calls with them. I mean, their salespeople probably still must talk about how they hate flip because we hit them about their systems. We hit them about policies, procedures, outages, APIs, um, you know, fraud disputes and, and onboarding and fails and yellow path and red path and green path. And they were relentless and they were, they were amazing. So they really checked the box from a security standpoint. And then Galileo, which is the processor, they're kind of the engine behind the debit card. They handle nine out of the 10 um, top fintechs in the, in the space. And 
They are a, a payment processing behemoth. So those three parts, making sure that we were okay with Dubut and making sure that they could develop what we wanted them to develop and not give in quality. Um, and then make sure that we had the security and processing and guardrails in place. All of those things together got us, got us comfortable with our decision. Okay. Let's talk. We've got 10 ish minutes left, right? Let's talk okay. go to market strategy. Um, so you're getting ready to launch in the next call it four to six weeks, right? Mm -hmm. Um, hopefully the short side, not the long side. Um, what's the, you know, what's the target market? Uh, what's the, how do you, how do you start to build that out? And, you know, obviously you got to start someplace and, um, and then how do you grow up from there? Right. How are y'all going to manage that process? Yeah. First, let me just take a step back. So if you look at the current financial ecosystem, it's more or less one size fits all. In the last maybe 10, 15 years, it's really become more of a, a wealthier product. And I was going to say, I was going to say one size fits none. Um, is probably well, more yeah, than you're thinking, I'm, I'm a little bit more optimistic than you. I'm being a little bit nicer, so I don't get too many mean emails from big banks. Um, but there's when, when you look at the data and dive into the data, there's roughly 60, 70 million Americans that don't fit nicely into that current financial ecosystem. So why don't they fit into it? They there's a huge part that are essentially taxed out. They're feed out of the system. They can't afford to bank at some of the big banks. There's just too many fees. And then there's hidden fees. It's very hard to just budget around that. Then there's a host of people that just don't trust big banks. And there's a lot of bad behavior and they don't trust what they stand for. And they're looking for something else. And then the, the third one is really interesting because there's a whole group of people that have become accustomed to better user experiences. And I mentioned it earlier in media, in fitness and music and gaming, and they're looking for, for something better. So if you go one layer deeper, those people tend to be the minority community and they tend to be the younger generations. And those are the people that we are going after. And amazingly, when you really look at where most of those people live, the largest percentage of those people live in the Southeast United States. And we're headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina. So smack dab in the middle of people looking for something different. So as far as go-to-market strategy, we're, we're clearly going to be a, um, you know, a national product. And if there's people in California that just love flip and want to flip the script and want to come in and want to um, flip it and spin it and win it on the wheel, great. That's great. We, we, we want to have you. Um, but initially, we'll be focused on the Southeast and then we'll kind of roll out more nationally. But to your exact question, go to market. We are now turning the volume up on our marketing footprint. We are now driving more people to the wait list. We didn't want to drive people there too early so that they're sitting there for a year or 18 months or, or two years waiting for Flip to launch and not even remembering that they signed up for, for a wait list. So we're really driving people to the wait list right now. We're starting to drive that momentum, increase, increase our presence, finish the tech build, start to test everything out and then get in market and, and, and let people know that we're, we're very different and it's, this is going to feel different. It's going to look different. Um, we're going to interact with you differently than, than a, a big bank or even a medium-sized bank. And, you know, this is just, there's, there's a better way to do this and we're going to do it. Talk on this, on the wait list for a minute, right? So, um, do you continue to interact with, so I go to your website tomorrow, I sign up or um, today, um, I sign up for waitlist, right? 
do y'all, will y'all continue to interact with the folks between now and launch or how do you keep, do you keep reminding them that you, they signed up for flip? And by the way, I love how you just worked in flip and like six different phrases a minute ago. I thought that was awesome. Um, but how do you enter, how do you keep people engaged? Do you, right. Um, how does that wait list thing work for y'all? Again, you, you, you have to be, you know, you have to be very authentic and you have to be genuine um, with most of the stuff. Anytime you're dealing with a consumer, because they will, they will shut you off in a heartbeat. But with regard to the, the wait list, yeah, you have, to, you have to nurture and you can't nurture too much and you can't nurture too little. Um, where we like to do it, and we're going to do a lot more of this in the coming weeks, is include the wait list, include our future customers in naming conventions include them in, in surveys for what we're going to, what we're going to do. Um, sending out, you know, we're doing raffles and getting swag and sweatshirts and water bottles and hats out, out to people. And the response has been pretty strong. I mean, people are interacting and sending messages and saying, you know, wow, this feels, this feels really, really different. Or I love the wheel or when can I spin the wheel or when are you going to have crypto or what are you doing and are you hiring? And so the, the interaction has been real good, but to your point, yeah, it's all about nurturing that wait list and making sure that we know they're there and we appreciate that they're there and let, let them know flips coming. Um, so that's, that's, you know, that's, that's what we're doing on that front. Yeah. And I mean, that ties back into, um, just the gamification aspect of it. Right. So to make, um, you know, to make the banking experience a little bit more interesting and fun. And I mean, I've always said that, you know, Mint won out of the gate years ago from a budgeting perspective um, because they made it so easy and quote unquote fun, right? Um, I don't know if it was really fun, but they made it easy. Um, so is that one of the components that y'all are looking at is just making it easier and more more simple um or is it really a lot around the gamification aspect of, well, of how you'll launch and go forward just, let's just i mean it's definitely going to be modern it's definitely going to be social it's definitely going to be fun it's definitely going to be easy but let's just take let's just think about financial education just to use one example and financial ed, our financial education numbers are getting worse and our teenagers are not being taught financial education in school the minority community feels that they're you know left out of some sort of secret about handle how to handle your money crypto's making it worse and we think there's a huge opportunity there because people once again look at crypto and they see the Winklevoss twins and they see Elon Musk. And that's not very much an everyday product, but that very much could be an everyday product. And young people, the minority community should know about blockchain. They should know about crypto. But if, 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 we, if we just were looking at financial education and we're putting podcasts out there or articles out there, Google would have solved this. So people can Google how to be rich, how to not be poor, how to pay your bills, how to buy a house. So it's not working. It's not working delivering that sort of information to the consumer. So we're taking it from another angle and looking at gamification stats and the attraction, engagement, and retention numbers around gamification are, are pretty overwhelming. So even the way we deliver information on your finances and information on education is going to be peer-to-peer. So people... 90% of people trust recommendation from a peer, only about 14% trust an advertisement. They want to hear from their buddy, what car they're driving, why they drive it, what color they like, what features they like. So the peer-to-peer and the gamification. So if you can learn about investing through gamification, 
I mean, just in the education lane alone, the numbers are astounding about how kids are responding to gamification through learning. So we're going to layer that into our financial education program. Yeah, that's, um, sounds, um, it sounds sweet. So yeah. it's going to be, um, it'd be awesome. So I can't wait to see y'all, um, launch and come out of the gates. I mean, obviously, you know, you've got, you've got a lot of momentum. You've taken a very, um, I think deliberate might be the wrong term and certainly not cautious, but structured, um, process to get into this point. Right. So, um, seeing how y'all continue to navigate the launch and other things, it's going to be super interesting to watch. We kind of wrap up with one, one question. We'll knock on old people here. Don't worry. I'm an old person too. So I can ask yeah. old people questions. Right. Um, so, you know, you think about, you know, the business and how you've gotten to this point and all the different things that you're doing. You, you oftentimes hear that, you know, people within the ivory towers, Wells Fargo, Bank of America here in Charlotte, whatever, um, you know, might not have the, the creativity. They might've been stuck in the rut too long or whatever to step out and, and kind of do something. How do you counteract that? Right. How do you, I mean, obviously you're, uh, um, anti whatever they say about it. You've, you've taken something a really long ways and you've taken it from a, I'll knock you and say, you're no longer a napkin. You're well beyond a napkin. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> so, but I mean, how do I mean, um, you know, how do you counteract the statement that, you know, old bankers can't, can't get out and do this? Oh, you're never, I mean, the, the greatest thing about working for a large bank is the training you receive and the people you are around, the clients you interact with. But I am a firm believer that you need to take that and put your own spin on it. And you need to jump outside that lane and, and drive a little faster. And there is, you know, you get, when you work at those big banks, you get, you, it's almost like driving around 485, which is for those outside Charlotte is a loop around Charlotte. It's like, you just drive on the same loop in the right lane. And you don't, you know, there's a much bigger world when you jump off and get on a, a 77 or get on 85 and head North, South, East or West. But it is, it is never too late um, to, to, to jump into this. And I think that the amount of talent that is in those towers um, should jump out. And I promise you that net will appear. Jump out and start innovating. Um, the South is a hotbed of talent. It's going to be amazing what we see, what the Southeast looks like in 10 years. I can't wait. Yeah, no, I agree hundred percent. And, um, you know, folks like you, you know, being the first, some of the first to, to step out and do it will help, you know, lead the path for everybody else. So I appreciate you carving out some time to, you know, talk about your company, talk about the process, right. Kind of open yourself up and let everybody know how you approached it. And, um, super helpful. It's always good to hear how different people dissect problems. Um, so thoroughly enjoyed the conversation today, BJ. Um, and I'll sign up and, or I'll jump off and, and go sign up, but just for listeners, uh, is it weflip.com? Is that where they go yeah, sign it, up? Yeah. It's we flip with a Y. So we F L Y P.com. And, uh, you know, flipping the script on banking. We want you as a customer. Come on. If you want to do it, if you want to flip the power back to the people, let's do it. So I love it, man. So, well, good luck. Thanks again for carving out some time with us. We'll have to have you back on in a year or two when, um, when y'all are well beyond launch. That's great. Thanks, William.
investment advisor representative of Portis Wealth Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualify as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.